Good evening, everyone. Thanks very much for being out here uh, this evening. And uh, if you weren't here this morning, don't be anxious. I'm not presuming. Uh, although, if you were, I hope you'll find you'll see some continuity between what we are up to tonight. This morning, we talked um, really about why worship is formative, and that's precisely because we are these liturgical creatures. We are creatures who are defined by what we love. Tonight, I want to sort of build or, or expand on that and think about then why worship is relevant to mission. I want to think about the connection between worship and mission, and in particular, why worship propels us into culture making. If you, you've had Andy Crouch here, we could put it that way. Why it propels us and how it prepares us to take up our task as God's image bearers in the world. So let me, let me set a frame for that in terms of what I'll call an anthropology, a model of the human person. Um, this morning I tried to argue that you are what you love. It's not that you're defined by what you think, you're not defined so much by what you know, that what really makes us tick is our longings, our desires, our most uh, uh, fundamental passions, which are really, we are made as creatures who are made for God and to desire God and what God desires. Now, that also means, however, that we might not love what we think. <laughs> you are what you love, but you might not love what you think. Why? Because our loves are shaped and trained and aimed and directed by the love-shaping practices that we are immersed in. Those are rhythms and routines and rituals that over time and often at a kind of unconscious level are calibrating your desires to some ultimate vision of the good life. And I use the term liturgies to talk about as a shorthand to describe these sort of ultimate love-shaping practices. But that also means that not all liturgies are good liturgies. Right? Not all liturgies are rightly ordered to God and his kingdom. That there are all kinds of rival liturgies and disordering and deforming cultural practices that are actually trying to recruit our hearts to love and desire rival gods and to actually sort of uh, um, idolize features of the creation. So that's why part of the cultural analysis that we need to do is to become adept and discerning and look at our cultural uh, context and our own cultural immersion, not just listening for the ideas and messages and false teachings, so to speak, that are in, in uh, uh, the culture, but asking ourselves, what do these practices want me to become? How are these cultural liturgies that I'm immersed in actually sort of affecting my loves? And that finally, and this gets us now to Christian worship, okay? Why is Christian worship the heart of discipleship? Because worship should be that spirit-empowered incubator, that imagination station, where our loves and our longings are being retrained, reformed, recalibrated towards God and towards God's kingdom. So worship then, Christian worship, is a counterformative space. Intentional Christian worship is that uh, um, sort of centering, anchoring community of practice in which we learn how to love God, in which we learn how to love the things that God loves, 
And as we emphasized this morning, that takes practice. It means you have to do it over and over and over again. One of the things that's slightly scandalous about this model and this argument is that in this account of formation, worship as formation and not just expression, is it means that repetition is a good thing. Right? Repetition is a good thing because there is no formation where you don't have repetition. Now, we're kind of allergic to that. We're like, oh, if you're repeating things, it's like not sincere or it's not authentic or it's not novel or it's not fresh or whatever words you want to throw in there. But the thing is, if you don't embrace the good of repetition, you don't get the power of formation. And the irony is, of course, is that we embrace repetition in all kinds of other features of our lives, but somehow we think that habit-forming repetition is not relevant for our spiritual lives, which is an odd little sort of bubble that we create. How many of you are musicians? So, okay. The way, and how many, so you might be a violinist, a pianist, whatever it might be. The fact is, it's in a way, you can now play without thinking about so, right when you're when you you don't have to sit there and think okay my finger needs to be on this fret at this time or something like that. you have a kind of know-how that you now carry in your bones how did it get there because you or probably somebody for you decided that you were going to practice every single day over and over and over and over again and that repetition was good because it actually inscribed a kind of know-how that you now carry in your bones it's what the philosopher Merleau-Ponty calls okay well it's, he calls it practonosia. Don't worry about that. What it, all it means is it's a kind of know-how that you can't articulate and yet you have learned. It's a kind of facility you've acquired. And what I'm suggesting is that there are insights about that that are relevant to our spiritual formation in Christ. And that we shouldn't be allergic to that because that's just part of the features of how we've been made by God. We have been made as embodied creatures. We have been made as creatures of habit. And none of that surprises God. He made us. And he meets us where we are as creatures of habit and gives us these practices to form and shape us. So tonight, I want to I then think about, okay, well, why would that be significant for the work of Christian mission? And I actually want to also maybe expand our sense of what counts as mission in the process. I, I want to suggest that we can learn something about mission by looking at the end of worship. Now, it strikes me that I might need to do a little bit of, um, let me do a little bit of remedial work here. Okay, so, a, a lot of the kinds of claims that I want to make about worship as formation are true of traditions and heritages of worship that are sort of historic and ancient. So one of the things that I usually try to emphasize, in this way I follow uh, an eminent uh, theologian named Bob Weber, who, who um, uh, has been a big influence on me, where he talks about what he calls ancient future faith. That is, the best way for us to be faithful in post-modernity, in the future of the church, is actually to remember the ancient wisdom of the church's practices and heritage. Okay? And that includes receiving as a gift the accrued wisdom of the church's liturgical heritage. And so maybe let's for a shorthand, let's call, I'm going to call that intentional historic Christian worship. 
Okay, intentional historic Christian worship. Now, the challenge is, and this is where we are all coming from, 14 million different places tonight, so I don't know what we can all assume of one another, but I'm going to guess that actually some of us have never been in a worship context that is follows the rhythms of intentional historic Christian worship, because many of us are used to a little bit more of a kind of um, 30 minutes of singing, 40 minute sermon offering and go kind of liturgy, right? That's kind of a, the sort of sort of standard evangelical liturgy. Whereas I'm talking about a historic form of Christian worship in which each sort of moment and season of the service, season's too strong, each, each moment of the service is a chapter of a story that is being told over and over and over again. And there's a very intentional pattern to it so that there is a narrative arc to Christian worship. And, and, and it's common across the whole array of Christian traditions. So if, if, if it sounds like I'm up here making some sort of defense and apologetic for Anglicanism, that's not necessarily true, although that is one of the expressions of it, okay? But it goes, uh, without trying to freak you out, it, it, um, I'll give you just one example. In historic Christian worship, and I'm calling it intentional because there are reasons for doing it this way. That's what we mean by intentional. There's a reason we're doing it this way. In intentional historic Christian worship, worship always begins with a call to worship. Okay? Now, why? Because it is rehearsing the biblical story. And the biblical story begins with the action of the creator who calls into existence reality. So the fact that Christian worship begins with a call to worship from God is a reminder that God is the initiator and God is the primary actor and agent who is calling us. Now that makes a difference, I want to suggest, when you are immersed in that story to just constantly, it's almost like every worship service begins with Genesis 1, <laughs> a little bit, right? It's almost like being called into existence like Adam and Eve are called into existence. It's a reminder of the narrative arc of the biblical story. And it's a little bit different than just everybody milling around, listening to uh, drinking coffee, and then somebody starts playing the guitar really loud so we know it's time to sit down. There's just a different, do you notice there's just a different, there's a different story being told in the practice, even if we don't talk about it. Okay, then we'll, we'll, we can talk about some different elements in between, but it is also not insignificant that in intentional historic Christian worship, it also always ends with a benediction, which is both a charge and a blessing, right? So you, and this, is, this isn't just traditional, there's a reason for it, because what that is saying is now having been brought through the gospel story again as the people of God, we now come to the point where we are sent. So worship, the ending of worship, is ascending. What's the Latin word for sending? Missio. Mission. Right? So the narrative story of worship is a story in which the people of God are brought into relationship with God, rehearse the, the, the miracle of redemption in Christ, relive and reenact the gospel, and at the end of it now, we are sent out from that space to take up our task as God's image bearers. So the point of worship is not an escape from the world. Right? It's not, worship isn't the place where you go hide because the rest of the week the world is so horrible. 
Worship is actually the space where you regather to learn what the world really is because your job, you had one job, your job is to be sent back out as image bearers of God. So the site of formation that is worship culminates in this sending where we are told to go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We take up our cross. We do that by taking up our cross along with now our commission to cultivate the earth. See, I think it's significant that in a way what's getting re... I I would put it this way. In Christian worship, you learn how to be human. In Christian worship, you learn how to be human. You don't learn how to be an angel. You learn how to be human. You're not preparing for an escape hatch from the material world into some disembodied heavenly realm. You are being taught how to be human. What did that look like? Again, look at Genesis 1 and 2. What were we made for? We are created in God's image. Male and female, he created them. And then what does he do? He gives them a mission. What is that mission? To cultivate the earth. To tend it. To steward it. To... uh, um, Older translations has a sense of sort of dominate it. That just means master it for the sake of its own flourishing and for our flourishing. And so what is the image of God? The image of God is actually doing that mission. The image of God isn't so much like there's some brand or stamp on us. Like, oh, I see you've got the image of God on you, right? It's not like a property. The image of God is a task. It's a mission that we are given. How do we bear God's image? By taking up this work. And so now, having been remade in Christ and now reformed in the practices of Christian worship, we get to the end of the story and we are sent just like Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Now we are in a place to actually do that because we've been empowered by the Spirit to do so. So it's that recreating, that creating and recreating God who tells us to go, even as he goes with us, he says, even to the end of the age. So Christian worship culminates in ascending that comes with a promise. As you go, you go with his blessing, something like that, right? There's a sense that we we are commissioned to be his image bearers. Now, why does that make a difference? To emphasize that the ending of worship is ascending is I'm not trying to reduce worship to moral formation or something like that. Rather, I just want us to see that there is this logic to the Christian life that is both, I always get these mixed up, it is both centripetal and centrifugal. Okay, any science majors in here? So I just always remember that a fugue sends you out. So think of it, that the rhythms of the Christian life are both centripetal, right? Centripetal is a spinning motion that sort of draws you inward. The people of God gather. Every single week, we are called to gather. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Gather. Centripetally pull yourselves together. Come together as the body. Because in that gathered space, in that centripetal uh, uh, um, coming together, we now come and encounter the living God in his word, at the table, in the sacraments, and he is the one who is acting in worship. 
right? That's one of the things I tried to emphasize this morning is that worship on this model is not just an expressive thing that we do to show God how much we love him. Worship is a formative encounter in which God is working and getting hold and molding us like the potter and clay. Okay. But after we centripetally gather, we are centrifically sent back out. And you keep looping over and over and over again. The thing about this Christian life and the thing about this school of virtue that is Christian worship is you never graduate. Right? You never get to a point. It's not like your, your Tyndale professors are like, oh, whew, I don't need church anymore. I'm good to go. No, 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 no. We all always need the dynamic of centripetal reformation in Christ so that we can be centrifically sent out as his image bearers. Think of it as worship is a centripetal invitation to recenter ourselves in the story that is the gospel. And the reason tonight why I want to talk about restoring your imagination is that it's in those practices of Christian worship that the gospel story, which is the true story of the whole world, as Tom Wright once put it, it starts to sink into your bones and you now will carry it in your unconscious almost. Uh, um, you, you carry it in your bones and under your skin in a way that is going to shape how you act as you are sent, right? Because it has captured your imagination. So to continually pursue and deepen our enfolding in Christ is the reason why we keep centripetally gathering. It's not, think of it this way, it's not a matter of choosing between worship or mission. It's a false dichotomy. Nor are we faced with a dichotomy of church or world, cathedral or city. To the contrary, it, we worship for mission. We gather for sending. We center ourselves in the practices of the body of Christ for the sake of the world. It's not one or the other. It's that missional telos of Christian action then that precisely requires us to be intentional about the formation that's going on in Christian worship. Do you see, do you see how, if, if that makes sense? In other words, uh, um, sorry, I'm going to get really excited, but... Okay, take a breath. The point is that we are called to regather and centripetally center ourselves in the congregational and communal practices of Christian worship because it is there, in that count encounter, that the Spirit of God is implanting the story of the gospel in your bones sinking it into your very character. But if worship is going to do that, we have to be careful and intentional and purposeful about the story that is being told when we gather for worship. Make sense? And so one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of uh, gently, hopefully winsomely, just suggesting we might learn something from historic Christian worship is this. Not all communities of practice that claim to be Christian worship will necessarily have this counterformative power. Why? Because, unfortunately, in the name of relevance, 
novelty, freshness, whatever it might be, we decided to abandon the wisdom of certain historic Christian worship practices and thought we would try other forms that we thought would be more attractive, more relevant, whatever it might be. The pro And here's my only concern. Remember this morning I was saying that cultural liturgies have their own loaded vision of the good life, right? They already come preloaded in the practices with some particular rival version of the kingdom. That means that those forms of practice are not neutral, right? So they're not, they're not just neutral husks that you can then drop some content or message into and say, oh yeah, no, we're good to go. No, 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 those forms of practice are already tacitly loaded and primed towards some other rival version of the good life. So for example, you can't just take the liturgies of consumerism which everybody is familiar with and everybody's comfortable with, and then sort of drop in Jesus into the liturgies of consumerism and think that you've just made the gospel relevant to our culture. Why? Because that's not what happens. Instead, you've just commodified Jesus. You've just made Jesus one more product that people buy and put on their shelf because consumerism thinks that's how you will be happy. And so with the best of intentions, we sort of jettison a bunch of historic wisdom about worship without realizing that in, in, in doing so, we've kind of trucked into the sanctuary forms of practice that are already primed and loaded in another direction. Does that make sense? So I don't want to, we can talk about, we're going to, by the way, tonight we're going to have Q&A session, which can be throw tomatoes at the speaker session if you want to have that conversation. I just, I just want to reframe, notice, we are not for a second talking about traditionalism versus contemporary worship. That to me is the most unconstructive and unhelpful dichotomy we have. Okay? We're talking about why do we do what we do when we worship? What's the story? What is the story that our worship is telling? And what, what happens is, if we, if we just think we can sort of adopt, quote-unquote, secular liturgies, which are familiar and comfortable and relevant, and then sort of drop a little bit of Jesus content in them to convey the message, the information about the gospel, what we won't realize is that those have already... Um, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse dynamic, right? Do you see that? And so you, you are, and, and what's lost is precisely the counterformative power of the strangeness of Christian worship. If our Christian worship just has the same rhythms as the liturgies of consumerism that we're already used to, then what we are losing is precisely the opportunity for a community of practice centered in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, to push back on that formation that we are immersed in the rest of the week. And, and what will happen is different chapters of the story will drop out. So, for example, I'm totally abandoning my notes here, by the way. But uh, um, For example... In the sort of narrative arc that is historic Christian worship, the people of God would always come to a moment where in the presence of God's holiness, they would have to communally confess their sins. Okay? So confession is an essential part, it's a chapter, if you will, in the story of Christian worship. Now, which is a very 1 John 1, 9 kind of thing to do, right? 
always be, always be ready to confess your sins. And what happens immediately? God announces his forgiveness and pardon. So you go through a process of confessing your sins and immediately you are, are uh, hear the good news of God's forgiveness, his absolution, his pardon, his mercy. Well, what happens if, I think, I, I'm not going to ask you, but I think a bunch of us have probably been in worship services that never do that. Okay, so I just want you to think about this. What part of the gospel story and its formative power is lost if you take that chapter out of Christian worship? Just think about that, right? Remember, the whole point of this formative Christian worship is that we keep being invited into the story over and over and over again because that's how the story really seeps into our imagination. But now what if I have just lifted out a pretty important chapter of that story? Well, then it's never going to have formative influence on me. And in fact, what, what, what even more significantly is I lose the chance for that chapter of the story to push back on the cultural liturgies that I'm immersed in, which keep telling me, Jamie, you are, you are good to go. Believe in yourself. You've got everything you need in here, right? All the kind of sort of pop, pop, uh, positive psychology stuff that we get, which says, no, you're, you're good, you're good. Don't believe the lie that there's something wrong with you. No, there's something wrong with you. But thanks be to God, you are in Christ. Right? You don't want to lose either side of those. I mean, it would be equally bad, by the way, to be immersed in practices of Christian worship that have confession and don't announce <laughs> the good news. That's legalism. right? That's the slavery that is legalism. So there, when you lose part of the chapter, when you lose one of the chapters of the story, you also are missing out on the chance for that to sink in to your imagination. And therefore, it's not going to shape the way that you inhabit the world. I'll come back to confession in a moment. Um, I had this really great section on John Calvin. Anybody want to hear about John Calvin? Because, yes, okay, all right. So uh, um, what's interesting is if you go back to, you know, one of the great Protestant reformers, I, I think I always want to do this because some, at this point some people are thinking, is this guy Catholic? You know, people are getting sort of nervous. And uh, I just want to say, it, everything I'm saying you can find in John Calvin. And... What's interesting is there's a great book by Matthew Myers Bolton, which is a history of Calvin's view of practical theology and Christian formation. It's called Life in God. And one of the things he points out is Calvin and the reformers in general, but let's say Calvin in particular, were very critical of monasticism. Do you know what I mean? Monasteries, monks, you know, cloistered. Uh, uh, the spiritual communities. And, and Calvin was very critical of monasteries. And, and you might mistakenly assume he was critical of them because they had rituals and these spiritual disciplines and it looked like they were going through, you know, Christianity by works and things like that. Actually, that was not his criticism. His criticism wasn't that monasteries had rituals that people participated in all the time. His problem was that they sequestered those, those rituals for just a few and didn't let the whole city of Geneva participate in them. The problem wasn't the rituals. The rituals are what Calvin called a suite of spiritual disciplines that remake our lives, that reform our desires. He was all about the ritual reformation of our habits, 
to be oriented towards God. He wanted to break down the walls of the monastery, not because he thought there was something wrong with what they were doing, but because he wanted it to spill over to the whole city. And so he, at one point he talked about he dreamed of Geneva being a magnum monasterium, one giant monastery. In which, by that, what he meant is he wanted everybody in Geneva to be daily immersed in the rhythms of prayer and fasting and the spiritual disciplines so that they could be, they didn't have to just be spiritual supermen and women, right, who were, lived on some sort of upper echelon of, of, the, of the kingdom, which he thought was bunk. He wanted butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers to be formed by the same spiritual practices so that they would then take up their work as butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, and moms and dads, and pastors, and so on, with that Christian imagination shaping what they were doing. I think it's a beautiful vision of, this is something for Tyndale to think about as you move into another sort of monastery space, or, you know, what, what, what kind of opportunity is there here? And I do, by the way, think that this is relevant to the task of Christian higher education, that in a way, a Christian college and a Christian seminary are spaces where you can be intentional, about what the rhythms and disciplines of a Christian formation look like through the week as well, right? On the one hand, I'm making the argument that the gathered congregation is the center and hub of Christian discipleship. But I'm not saying that that's the totality of it. That, there's no way that that's possible. There's no way an hour and a half on Sunday is enough to counter the formative power of all the cultural liturgies we are immersed in the rest of the week. You need to then spin out of those into other kinds of communities of practice and discipline, and I think a college and a seminary are a fantastic place to think about that. So Calvin talked about what he called a dispositional deflection is what happens in our spiritual formation. What does he mean by that? Our dispositions, our inclinations, our affections are trained to be deflected away from the disordered desires towards rightly ordered desires in God and his kingdom. Dispositional deflection takes practice. That's, that's the upshot of it. Now, what then does this mean for mission? What does it mean for our cultural mission? What does it mean for evangelism and so on? Well, I'm saying we gather to be sent. And we are sent to do. So we are sent out as ambassadors, agents of God's coming kingdom to undertake Christian action that participates in the mission of God. So mission really here is a shorthand to describe what it is for Christians to pursue their variety of vocations to the glory of God, oriented to the shalom of the coming kingdom. But as I've been trying to emphasize, uh, think of it this way, your action. Your, your sort of cultural labor when you are sent out to, up, up, to bear God's image in whatever vocation you might have. You can do all to the glory of God when you are shaped in this way. In many ways, our action bubbles up out of our habits and dispositions more than it is the reasoned, deliberate conclusion to a sort of thought process. I didn't put that very well. Here, here's what I mean. Um, so I think there's a lot of really interesting research happening right now in neuroscience, cognitive psychology, social psychology, that confirms a lot of ancient Christian intuitions about spiritual formation. 
one of the things that we are starting to learn and appreciate that is in any given day, about three to five percent of your actions are the outcome of conscious, deliberate choice. Okay, so if, you, if, some, if somehow you could take an audit of every action you undertook today, only about 3 to 5% of those actions were actions in which you sort of thought for a second, should I do A or I should, should I do B? I'm going to do B. A very, very small slice of your action is actually the outcome of conscious deliberative choice. The rest of your action is actually the kind of uh, um, unconscious orientation that you carry to the world that just propels you in certain directions. It's, it's the fruit of dispositions and habits that you've acquired. So imagine human consciousness is like a, a, a um, you know, I should really learn to use PowerPoint because this would be better. But does this work for you? Um, imagine, imagine human consciousness is like an iceberg. And you know the proverbial tip of the iceberg kind of dynamic. Okay. Only the very tip of the iceberg is you thinking about what you should do. The rest is all happening under the hood of your consciousness. It's not, we're not talking about instinct, like breathing. That doesn't count. We're talking about things that you do. I'll give you a really easy example of this, or a, a, a trite example almost. Um, how many of you have ever taught, some of you will have, a teenager to drive a car? Okay? You live to tell the tale. Okay? What's happening when a teenager is learning how to drive a car is every single part of that is for her being processed in that tip of the iceberg, right? In other words, when you are learning to drive a car, all of it you have to think about and consciously and deliberately choose to do, right? So that's why it's so terrifying because, you know, you're sitting in the pastor. I've learned that if you put praise and worship CDs on, dad calms down a lot, and so, you know, your daughter's 16 is driving, and, and she has to think about every aspect of driving, right? Check my mirror. Check my lines. Check my mirror. Here's the thing, right? And, and that's why it's so frantic. And it's almost like you can't drive very long like that, right? It's exhausting. None of it is automated. Now, contrast that with some of us. Imagine, I, I can't imagine this happening at Tyndale University College, but imagine you had like some department meeting on a Friday afternoon that was frustrating, and you're, you're you, you wouldn't stomp out of the meeting, but you leave a little bit grumpy out of the meeting, and you're still thinking about it. You go to your car, and you get in your car, you're still thinking about what that guy said and what this girl said, and you're sort of grumpy. And, and then all of a sudden, you're in your driveway, and you don't remember driving home. Anybody had that experience? Okay, what ha what's the difference? You have done that so many times that the action has become automated and you don't have to think about it anymore. Your unconscious takes over. Make sense? In other words, almost none of your driving was processed in that tip of the, conscious, tip of the iceberg of your consciousness. All of it now is something that you can manage at this unconscious level. All right. I'm suggesting that that tells us something about who we are as human creatures and that it is relevant to discipleship. That in some way, becoming remade in Christ's image is actually becoming the kind of person for whom a gospel orientation to the world 
is not always even something that you have to consciously think about because now you have lived into that story over and over again in so many ways that now it actually sort of governs your unconscious perception of the world and is driving action out of you in ways that you don't even realize and yet has been shaped by the power of the Spirit. Right? You are now that kind of a person. That's what virtue is. To have your unconscious so captured by the imagination of the gospel that that's just how you see the world now. Right? Your perception has been shaped by God's perception of the world. And you have absorbed that. You've been trained that. That's what I want to call a Christian imaginary. A Christian imagination. Because now, it's not even just how you think about the world, it's how you imagine the world from the get-go. That, to me, is sort of like, it's one way of describing what is the holy grail of sanctification. I want, don't, don't you want to be that kind of a person? You know, this morning I was talking about virtue, right? And the virtuous person is somebody who has acquired the character traits. They've been so formed in such a way that these good moral habits have been woven into your character so that now you're the kind of person who is disposed to doing the good because it grows out of the very fiber of who you are, right? It's woven into the character of who you are. And in fact, what, what the tradition would say is that to be that kind of virtuous person means that you don't have to think about it. In contrast, when I walk down the street and I'm in this situation and now I have to say, should I be compassionate or should I not be compassionate? As soon as I am deliberating, it's a sign that I'm not virtuous. <laughs> the irony is, the very fact that I have to deliberate is a sign that there's still a gap in my sanctification, right? And, and so I don't, I, part of it is, I think, helping us to not be anxious about embracing the power of habit. The Spirit wants to capture your habits. The Spirit wants to reorder your habits. That's what it is to really be remade in God's image. That's why I think uh, um, the way worship forms us, the way worship works, why, why does Christian worship have this formative power? It's not just because it is fueling your intellect with the ideas and beliefs and knowledge that you need. It's because worship acts and on us and forms us in a kind of aesthetic way. Now, I don't mean that it's pretty or beautiful. What I mean is it gets, it gets hold of your gut, right? It speaks to you and is, and is capturing your imagination the way that a story does, the way that a poem does, the way that a movie does, right? That the, those works of art are sort of working on you. They're not just trying to put ideas into your intellect. They are actually trying to sort of pluck the strings of your imagination. And I think good, intentional, formative worship does the same thing. There is, a, there is an embodied, material, visceral, aesthetic aspect to how Christian worship works. And that's why it gets hold of our imagination. Um, let me come back to an example. So earlier I was saying, there is a reason why the sort of narrative arc of Christian worship included this moment of confession and assurance of pardon, right? That's like a chapter of the story that we need to get into our bones because it, it, is, it pushes back on cultural liturgies. So to give you, to be even more concrete, I don't get concrete very often, so uh, um, 
for example, the liturgy of confession, of confessing our sins, is a counterformative liturgy to the cultural liturgies of kind of self-helpism, right? The cultural liturgies of you're okay-ism, believe in yourself-ism, right? Which are, which are really ripple throughout our culture. And so the Christian moment of confession pushes back on that. However, the Christian announcement of the assurance of pardon, of forgiveness, of absolution, also pushes back on cultural liturgies. For example, I actually think the liturgies of the mall, the, the rituals of consumerism, have their own really weird, distorted version of sin. What they'll say is, there's something wrong with you. This product or service will solve your problem, right? My, my favorite example, my fa the most horrifying example to me is, um, uh, I have a 16-year-old, and whenever we're watching TV and, like, Clearasil acne cream commercials come on, they are horrible, horrible things because they basically say something like this, why are you alone at the dance? Right? It's, I mean, like, it's going to go right to this poor 14-year-old's insecurities and anxieties, right? Why does no one ever call you? Because you have a zit. Right, and it's really it's it's a really kind of I mean try to remember what it was like to be fourteen. It's horrible. I would never want to be fourteen again in my whole life, and and to now have that overlaid with that kind of pointing out your faults, pointing out your error. But here's the thing, the gospel of consumerism does not offer any good news. It doesn't offer forgiveness. It doesn't offer mercy. It holds out a product, but here's the dirty secret of consumerism. If the products ever actually worked, you would stop buying things. So what will have to happen is, even if Clearasil does work for you, we are going to have to find other things that are wrong with you to keep motivating you to buy products. And so you're never going to hear absolution from the gospel of consumerism. You're just going to hear new sins pointed out. Now do you see how the, the moment of Christian worship where we go through the rhythm of confession of our sins but then immediately being absolved and forgiven by God is actually countercultural and counterformative in different ways. Now, add one more layer to that. What difference would it make if we confessed our sins on our knees? Don't freak out. Here's what I think is significant. Your body knows things you could never articulate with your mind. There is a kind of bodily know-how here. Mark Twain uh, once famously quipped, He who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. He who carries a cat by the tail Learn something he can learn in no other way. What does he mean by that? Let's imagine I've carried a cat by the tail. And now let's imagine that I have incredible powers of articulation and prose. And I'm going to describe to you now what it's like to carry a cat by the tail. Let's imagine I do actually a fantastic job. Let's imagine I'm as good of a writer as Mark Twain. That is never going to be the same as you trying to pick up a cat by the tail. Why? Because there is something irreducible that you know 
in the experience of carrying the cat by the tail that you can't learn in any other way. What I'm suggesting is there is something going on in the gathered, material, sacramental, communal practices of Christian worship by which you learn something about God that you can't learn in any other way. That you absorb the gospel in you that you can't in any other way. And to confess your sins on your knees is to almost sort of understand with your body something about our humility. And maybe even something about Christ's humiliation. Especially when you're old like me and you hear the crackly old bones and you remember right how frail we are. But then, this is the best part. Is Jesus says, get up. Get up. Get up. I see you in me. You're forgiven. Right? To me, this is powerful. To confess myself, this is humbling. Especially if you do it in Protestant churches that are not set up for people to kneel. It's also awkward. You're in the pews like this and you don't know what... It's, it's just... I, I, I like awkward. I actually think awkward is a really good minder of how gawky we are as human beings. Okay? But to me, the real power of this bodily ritual is the standing up for the good news. Stand up. You're forgiven. There is a way in which we come to understand something about God's grace in the practices of Christian worship that you can't learn in any other way. And when you are regularly immersed in that story and it's sinking into your bones, then that also means that when you are sent on mission for God, you carry that story with you in ways that you might not even be able to put into words, right? It's never quite the same as just carrying the cat by the tail. And yet, that story goes with you, shaping your imagination, priming you for action, orienting you to long for God's kingdom. So now the action you undertake, the cultural labor you undertake, is in ways that you might not even realize, slowly but in some significant way, is starting to bear witness to God's coming kingdom. Our work becomes missional just to the extent that we are formed in those practices of Christian worship. That's not because it's a spiritual self-help program. It's not because it's some sort of bottom-up we are mastering. It's because the Spirit is inviting us into those practices. He's there. Do you want to be shaped in Christ? It's not a matter of finding just the right book that's going to change it all or going to just the right retreat or conference or, you know, camp that's going to change it all. It's really actually quite boring. It's show up for word and table and be there where the Spirit is over and over and over again as the Spirit gets hold of us for the sake of His kingdom. Thanks very much.